Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. I'm sitting here in the Everglades. It's beautiful. We got black buzzards flying around and gators in the water. And I'm sitting here with Zach and Hannah. Zach, say hi. Hey, how's it going? And Zach, introduce yourself. My name's Zach. I'm a DPT student at the University of St. Augustine, and I'm from Yorktown, Virginia. And one of my good burden friends. And then Hannah, his future wife, is here, too. I'm also from Yorktown, Virginia. We all went to high school together. Um, Hannah, I'm a nurse. And, yeah. And let's I'm go birds. Let's <laughs> go birds. I'm super excited to have him with me. We are now sitting on a little patio over a canal in the Everglades. We left our location of the abandoned creepy buildings and the old missile silo, <laughs> much to Hannah's happiness to mm-hmm. finally leave there. <laughs> we survived. We did survive. And today we're going to do a episode about some invasive bird species of Florida. I am always super interested in invasive species. I'm not going to talk about house sparrows or starlings. I fucking hate them. But we're going to leave them alone and we're going to talk some more Florida-specific species. Zach, what do you know about invasive species? Not too much. I know Florida has a lot of invasive species. Um, yeah, why do you think that is? Um, combination of you know, people maybe settling here and bringing over... So, yeah, I mean, it's because, like, Florida has this subtropical climate that's hospitable, it's warm, there's, like, food all around, there's, it doesn't freeze here very often at all, so a lot of things are able to survive. Uh, there's a difference between a non-indigenous species and an invasive species. Non-indigenous means it's just outside its native range, versus invasive, it's capable of propagating and also likely causing damage. So I was really surprised. How many invasive bird species do you think there are in Florida, Hannah? Oh my gosh, a hundred. Two hundred. Wow. Okay. So you're close. Yeah. <laughs> However, good news: out of those two hundred, only fifteen to sixteen are established in breeding. Okay. So I'm going to focus only on the established breeding. So yeah, Florida. A lot of people bring their exotic pets here and like to have them around, but then they escape. Then they're let out into the wild. And so then they're let out into the wild, and not a lot of them, though, are able to actually breed and populate once they're out there. Uh, however, some are, and then they can create a major problem. So the first one I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about direct versus indirect 
invasive species direct, like they're directly released here or escape, versus invasive, they come from a nearby area and get over here on their own. And what do you want to talk about first, direct or indirect? Direct. Direct. Okay, cool. So first I'm going to talk about is the Muscovy ducks. So these are pretty familiar to like anyone in the U.S. or actually in Europe too. So they originally were in South America and we hear a lot about like the domesticated species that Europeans brought over, cows, goats, all that kind of stuff. But the Native Americans, one of the domesticated species that they had was this Muscovy duck. It's native to South America, and more recently it's also made it up into South Texas, naturally. However, it was domesticated by natives back in kind of Brazil area. And when the first Europeans came over, they found it and they realized, like, holy shit, this is like a really good duck and uh, I want to eat it and bring it to Europe. So they brought it over and the origin of the name, like Muscovy, it has something to do with Moscow. And we're not really sure if that's because some ruler in Moscow liked to eat it a lot or if just that name got put on it to designate it as an exotic species. So it went from Brazil to Florida and then somehow it ended up in Moscow or so (laughs) it was kind of taken back from Brazil to like Spain and to Europe and like all over So it's all over the place now yeah yeah um but it does especially well in somewhere like Florida because it uh people like to have it like in their backyards and stuff like that so there's a lot of ponds that people will have it in or their little backyard pool or whatever it's kind of an ugly looking little thing it's like white and black modeled and then it has this bare warty red face yeah. but wait i've seen that i saw that on my run the other day yeah yeah, yeah. that was a muscovy duck yeah yeah, yeah they are ugly <laughs> <laughs> um, they're really prized for their meat though out of any other duck they have a lot more especially breast meat yeah. and their meat okay. is compared to veal actually in the way it tastes it's kind of all over the urban U.S. and Europe, it's mostly more a nuisance species. They kind of shit everywhere. They're loud, aggressive. And I saw that wild ones nest in tree cavities. And I don't know if the domestic ones do that too, but if they nest in tree cavities, I would definitely take stuff away from native species. But they're really more a nuisance for people to have around. I see like the news in Florida hypes them up a lot because they'll like chase people around a pond or like (laughs) destroy their screen porch or something like that. Now, since they are an invasive species, you are allowed to humanely kill them. But of course there's stories about like people clubbing them to death in public. (laughs) Yeah. Of course the news loves stuff like (laughs) this, but one of the big things you can do for them is not feed them because they, if you don't feed them, if you don't give them bread or corn or whatever, then they'll have to go try to look for their own food, and they probably won't really be able to find it, and then hopefully some alligator or natural predator will take them out. Um, Also, you can shake their eggs to kill their eggs or coat it in olive oil to kill it. Um, However, apparently you don't want to kill all their eggs at once. You want to leave two in their nest alive still (laughs) so that they'll still spend time incubating their nest and kind of wasting their time just raising these two 
while all the rest of them are dead. Because if you kill all of them, no, I haven't. But I was reading about it. Yeah, that's so disturbing. I'm sorry. Shaking the, I mean, describing my face right now. Yeah, Hannah's like, look, as an invasive species, I have no mercy. I know. I'm like super protective of it if it's like a native species. Shaking an egg, putting olive oil on it, like, jeez. The moment it's invasive, nope, I'm shaking your babies. Okay. I mean, you like scrambled eggs, don't you? Yeah, but they generally don't have, like, an animal in them. <laughs> oh, anyways. There are some diseases that Muscovy ducks have, which we're kind of concerned they'll give to other species here. Like, they're more susceptible to malaria than other birds. They also carry something called the duck plague and then duck viral hepatitis, too. So that's kind of a concern is that they'll spread that to more native species. But that's the Muscovy duck, as much as I want to talk about it right now, mm. at least. What about the sacred ibis? So, yeah, the sacred ibis. Is so, it actually sacred? Well, as its name implies, it's native to Africa and the Middle East, and it was sacred to the Egyptians. They linked it to the ibis-headed god Thoth, which was kind of a god of the underworld and, uh, and, and death and stuff like that, so it was really revered. So, yeah, they were sacred birds. Um, however, in 1992, five sacred ibises escaped from the Miami Metro Zoo during <laughs> Hurricane Andrew. And also, we think some escaped from private collections also. But anyway, they're larger than native ibis species. They have this bare black head and neck and then these white bodies with black edges on their wings. So they're pretty distinctive from other native ibis, ibis species. But we were kind of worried that after they escaped here that they were going to spread and kind of uh, take over from other water birds. Um, originally, it didn't seem too bad. The ones that escaped from the zoo uh, originally remained nearby it. And zoo officials would kind of capture their young to try to keep their population from increasing, but kind of continued to increase and increase more and more. Uh, people began to cite them more and more, and they thought it was more concentrated to the urban areas. But then in 2005, kind of an alarm call went out when they found a breeding colony in the Everglades. And then a lot of concern was put on that they were going to start spreading and become a species implanted here. So... We were concerned that they were going to put pressure on the native wood stork and the white ibis. There's also evidence that sacred ibis will eat eggs and young of other birds. They eat the young of gulls and cormorants. So they're really worried that the sacred ibis is going to kind of put down, seagulls, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put down those native populations. But this is actually kind of a success story with invasive species eradication, because in 2008, staff at the Miami Zoo trapped some sacred ibis and then they released some of them too with GPS trackers, and that kind of led them to where the highest concentration of sacred ibises was, which turned out to be kind of around landfills in Palm Beach and in Miami-Dade. The reason they're kind of freaking out about these sacred ibises is because in Europe, where these sacred ibises had spread from, from like northern uh, Africa, mm -hmm. um, they had seen exponential population growth of the sacred ibis there, so they really didn't want that to happen here. They were able to exterminate and remove 75 sacred ibis, and... That was in 2008 to 2009, so on the Wikipedia article, you'll see that they were exterminated then. But that's not right, because we still, they still pop up every once in a while. In 2011, there were two incidents of sacred ibis being found and removed in the Everglades. And then, um, 
studies of these sacred ibis have found that they will adapt very readily to any kind of diet, and they're especially successful in human-disturbed areas. So if they, like, get implanted here, they would be able to exploit all the development we've had and be able to outcompete other species. So it's still vigilance with the sacred ibis, but we did a good job with that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of one we have not been able to exterminate, the gray-headed swamp hen. So this is also native to the Middle East, India, Southern Asia. It's a large, colorful blue rail with a red bill. And it was first seen in southern Florida in 1996. It escaped. The story is that in Broward County, there were two residents there in Rolling Oaks that had some gray-headed swamp hens they would let roam freely. And eventually they kind of escaped and got out just into florida breeding they're twice as large as the native gallinule and they compete with other wading dipping and diving birds in their native range they're known to eat eggs we're not sure if they eat eggs in this range also and they're colony nesters meaning that they'll uh group in these in these large groups together to to nest and everything and they will kind of push other birds out of potential colony nesting sites in 2006 to 2008, 3,187 swamp hens were killed. And this was like thought to be a really good thing, but it like really didn't do much to the, just the population rebounded right after that. So those eradication efforts failed. While usually they're a pretty like sedentary species that doesn't spread a lot, they'll usually remain concentrated in an area. If that area becomes unsuitable for them or the food runs low, then they'll go spread. They've, they've been shown to to do that so we expect i mean if the population is here reproducing in florida they're just going to keep spreading Hmm. so yeah they kind of they're unstoppable unstoppable (laughs) unstoppable gray-headed swamp ends Mm -hmm. Uh, another one i'll talk about is the common mina this is native to southern asia and they're members of the same family as starlings and they look a lot like starlings and they nest and act a lot like them They're very territorial birds, meaning that they'll compete a lot with any native species that are around. And they have this brown body with a black hood, yellow bill, and yellow legs, and then kind of a yellow little stripe thing behind their eye. And they are like one of the most popular birds sold as a cage bird all over the world. And so they're one of the most invasive species worldwide. Sometimes they were even intentionally introduced to places to try to control pests at sugar uh, cane plantations. And Fiji is an example of this, where they were released to eat bugs that were eating the sugar canes and then kind of went wild. In Florida, they were discovered in the 1980s in urban areas. They were first found in Miami-Dade and then quickly were found to spread to Palm Beach and the Everglades and then continue spreading from there. They especially like nesting in urban areas, as I said, and especially like letters and logos for buildings. So like your food lion sign, they would be Mm. nesting in like the O or something like that. And there might be some evidence that they breed with starlings too, creating Mm. like some hybrid super species. Scandalous. (laughs) Yeah. They're really spreading. In 2000, they were found in 500 kilometers north of Miami in Georgia. So... They're kind of, wherever their range lets them, the mina will kind of be spreading the same way the starling has spread all over the U.S. Some management for them, traps, removing their nests. In Fiji, they tried a big eradication program, but it was really unsuccessful because you, 
the traps they set up, you had to kind of constantly look at them. They're live traps so that they don't kill native species too. And you constantly have to be looking at the traps, resetting them and everything like that. So, so I have a question. You said earlier they're common like house pet bird or whatever. Yeah, um, cage bird. Why? I mean, they're not that pretty. Why would people keep them as pets? Well, because they uh, are capable of a lot of different vocalizations, so okay. they'll sing. Like starlings, they can sing all kinds of different songs. I mean, people used to keep starlings as pets. Uh, Mozart, I think, actually had a pet starling that he used to play songs with and stuff. Okay. So that's why. And, I mean, they do look a little bit trop. I think they look at least prettier than the starlings. Yeah. But, yeah, they're not, they're not a super attractive bird, I would say. Another bird that's a very popular caged bird species is the monk parakeet. Um, this one, you've probably seen it in, in pet shops. It's also called the Quaker parrot. It's called that because it kind of has this little bib that looks like a frock coat. So people mm. thought it looked like a like the Quaker oatmeal guy or, or looked like a monk wearing a habit. They're native to South America, and they're extremely traded on the on the pet trade. They're the only member of the parrot family to not nest in a cavity, actually. Other parrots will nest in, like, a tree or something like that. But these ones actually construct their own nest out of twigs. And sometimes they'll make a nest just for themselves, or sometimes they'll make, like, this big nest with lots of openings that multiple parrots or parakeets will uh, nest in. And actually, when I was walking around uh, your town today, yeah. uh, around your apartment in Miami today, I saw uh, a monk parakeet nest that was made out of spanish moss really? so wow. yeah yeah we we saw a flock i think and probably uh, yeah remember. um kind of greenish well, maybe those well, were blue could have been a different breed could have been a different breed but yeah, no, yeah they were very tropical looking yeah. it was probably the coolest bird that we've seen in our area other than pigeons yeah, <laughs> um, yeah i mean yeah. they're definitely like a city bird um yeah that's cool yeah we definitely saw something like that then yeah i think that's kind of a difference with these invasive species between the ones that are like just in cities and then the ones that i feel like the ones we worry about the most are the ones that like that um sacred ibis that we're worried about spreading out yeah. into like the wilderness into the everglades and stuff and just like taking over like the last stronghold for <laughs> birds there but like the ones i feel like that come into the urban areas were like yeah we already messed yeah. this place up yeah. like <laughs> But anyway, the monk parrots originally, I mean, they're in South America, but the populations that are here at least all came from uh, kind of the same areas of Uruguay. Through genetic um, analysis, we figured that out. They're also pretty prevalent in Europe, too, the, as an invasive species. The biggest U.S. populations we found are in Florida, Texas, and surprisingly in Connecticut, too. There's apparently a big flock in New York City and also a big flock in Chicago. Interesting. Yeah, so they're pretty versatile yeah, birds. Wherever they want to go. They were first um, kind of spotted in 1968 to 1972. 65,000 monk parakeets were imported to the U.S. And just individuals escaped... Um, or were let go, and now they're in 20 states across the U.S. They're a notorious pest in South America, eating a lot of farmers' food. So there was some worry that they were going to do that here and just, like, ruin our crops, but it doesn't really seem like that happens. Basically, the biggest 
kind of ecological impact they have here is twofold. One, they spread non-native fruit seeds a lot because that's kind of what they prefer to eat is kind of the stuff they're used to back home. And so they'll eat that and spread it throughout the environment here in Florida or the rest of the U.S. replacing our more native plants. And then also they, since they build those weaved nests, they tend to build them a lot on power lines or especially like utility poles and um, transformers. And sometimes a highly flammable nest like that next to electricity will cause yeah. a fire. So they're estimated wow. to cause half a million dollars of damage in southern Florida. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, every year. There were elimination campaigns in 1970, 1975, which uh, brought the population down in California, but didn't do too much. The population has rebounded since then. The estimated population in Florida right now is 18,000 to 32,000. And there's kind of some mixed attitudes towards them because they're a very smart bird as one of the reasons why they were so popular as a a pet is because they can learn like up to 250 words. They're very smart. They eat it. I said they were urban almost entirely now. It's they eat at bird feeders a lot. So people really like them. And so when cities will do like these eradication campaigns on them, people will really flip out, even though they're invasive species. I mean, my view is kind of like they don't belong here. <laughs> Let's yeah. kill them. But I mean, there's a lot of pushback. Yeah. Any thoughts on the any of those species there, you guys? I think so. I think I need to look at the miner though. I thought it kind of was it supposed to be a like a mockingbird almost, or the way they mimic other birds or the miner. I think they, they can. Mimic other birds or? I think they can because starlings can mimic birds. So I would think the miner could. You okay? I thought you saw something. Yeah, I know. I've been kind of watching. I see sometimes little splashes in the water. There's an anole right behind you. It's puffing out its neck every once in a while. Oh, yeah. I do see that anole. Speaking of invasive species, there's an anole. Uh. (laughs) Um, So the two other ones I want to talk about, they came here via indirect invasion. So that means that they weren't directly introduced to Florida, but they made it over here. So the two I want to talk about is the cattle egret, and the collared Eurasian dove. And I think I'll talk about the Eurasian collared dove first because I saw a ton of these when I was walking around that park next to y'all's house today. Yeah. It's probably like a city block-sized park, and there were about 10 Eurasian collared doves there. They originated in the Indian subcontinent, um, but then in the 1600s, they started to spread northwest. And this is like... There's something programmed into these birds, like they just fly northwest, like that's what they do. Um, I suspect the reason they kind of started spreading in the 1600s is because more settlement was going on, because these birds tend to like urban areas, and so as there were like kind of cities for them to jump and hop to, they were able to spread. And through the 1900s, basically, they spread up through Europe until 1955, they made it to Britain. So they really like spread in that northwestern direction and then kind of spread around that too, to where now they're all over in Europe. In 1974, a the story goes that a pet store in Nassau in the Bahamas was robbed and it released about 50 Eurasian doves because they were kind of a popular pet at that time too. And those Eurasian collared doves spread around the Caribbean until 1982. The first nestlings were found in Miami, Florida. Between 1986 and 1996, 
there was a 20 times increase in the population in Florida, and they continued that same Northwest March that they showed in Europe until in 2009, they were discovered in Alaska. So it only took them about 30 years to make it all the way from Florida up wow. to Alaska, which is pretty wow. nuts. They're, they look a lot like morning doves. They're yeah. kind of indistinguishable unless you see that little black collar outlined in white that they have on the back of their neck. However, they do sound a lot different. They, they kind of have that typical like European dove sound where they're like, ooh, ooh. Owl. Yeah, but yeah, they yeah, also like make. Growls. Yeah, they make. I was seeing them today, and they're making this weird like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're pretty crazy. Um, they knew you were gonna talk smack about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it. We thought that they would compete with native dove species, but I saw one study they did on this actually showed that native dove species increased wherever there were Eurasian doves. It's a kite. What do you see over there? Uh, yeah. Uh, you see that? It could be the snail kite, because that's... Yeah, let me the, take a look on that. Look at its split up. tail. Yeah, it looks... Yeah, well, I think, I oh, know. my God, yeah. I think it is a snail kite, maybe. Yeah. Its tail we is look so at it with weird. The, they're endangered. Yeah, we see... So we are looking at a large bird with long wings circling. It has, like, a tail that looks like a... It's like split, sparrow, like a V. Or a swallow, Yeah. Yeah, it was flying very gracefully like a kite. Oh, there it is over there. Let's it's just kind of soaring. Swallow-tailed kite, maybe? Yeah. You see it soar right here? Mm-hmm. Swallow-tailed kite? Yeah, I think that's what we saw. What does the snail kite look like? It doesn't have a tail like that. Yeah, yeah that's a very... Yeah, I think that's a swallow-tailed kite. That's awesome. That is good, really cool. Good, good sight there. It's a there. very... Yeah, the way it flies is... It's looks like a kite <laughs> yeah that's awesome good uh cool. good spot there yeah. zp okay so the eurasian dove so actually studies on it showed that native doves like morning doves actually their populations increased in areas where there was the eurasian collar dove so it seems not to be hurting the dove species at all but it does carry some parasites like trichomonas gallinae which is a like fecal oral parasite of the birds. However, um, trichinomus, uh, you might know this as an STD that's yeah. tr transmitted in humans, yeah. but it's different with birds apparently, <laughs> but kind of the same genus of parasite there. There's also a pigeon paramyxovirus that the Eurasian collared doves transmit. Um, paramyxoviruses in humans, that includes measles, mumps, RSV. So, but Can you get that from them? Or? Uh I don't think you can get the pigeon paramyxovirus unless you're a pigeon, Zach. Okay, yeah. But, <laughs> but I'm pigeon? just comparing what paramyxoviruses are in humans. Yeah, they can be pretty like bad. So yeah, so this is probably a pretty bad, yeah, pretty bad virus for the for the birds also. Those birds need to get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> Vaccinate your Vaccinate your, your pigeons. <laughs> All right, so the last one I want to talk about is the cattle egret. Uh, 
So this is kind of a cool story. The cattle egret kind of evolved in Africa and Asia to follow herds of buffalo, zebra, and antelope. Basically what it does is it feeds upon the invertebrates that they flush out, the grasshoppers and flies and stuff like that. It's often seen perched on the back of animals like that. Mm. And so many languages will call it stuff like the elephant bird, or the rhino bird, because it'll be perched on their backs. And actually the Arabic name for this bird is Abu Kirdan which means father of ticks, because people used to believe that it was eating the ticks off of the back of the animals that it was perched on. But it's not. Nope, it's just eating the invertebrates they flush out, which is actually kind of a weird uh, strategy for an egret. Most egrets and herons and all those birds that we know tend to wade in the water and eat fish and eat crustaceans and do that kind of thing. But this one is specifically concentrating on eating insects. The cattle egret, the way it came over is is pretty awesome. The first one was found in 1877 in Suriname on the northeast coast of South America, which is kind of above Brazil there. So it pretty much flew across the Atlantic Ocean to get here. And by 1917, it was seen in Colombia. Then 1941, it was spotted in Florida. By 1962, it had spread up to the west coast kind of it spread along the gulf coast and all up there it also spread to europe and australia it's kind of spread all over the globe now and what do you think the reason why it originally evolved in africa but now spread all over in more recent times uh did it come over via slave trade or no, no, it flew on its own to all okay. these places. It, it flew on boats. its own. Yeah, it didn't travel with, like, the boat. Uh-uh. Home. It flew on its own. Um, why? Well, just with the spread of humans. It's basically been following humans yeah. because wherever humans go, they bring cattle and they bring horses <laughs> with them. So the cattle eagle is basically able to, if humans are there, it's able to exploit that area. Okay. I was kind of wondering why it wasn't able to, like, come over earlier and, like, follow buffalo around or something. But yeah. kind of my thoughts on it is that niche was already exploited by some other animal. So it wasn't until humans come along. And so probably cattle egrets were flying across the Atlantic long before that, but they land here. They'd be competing with so many other species, they wouldn't be able to survive and die out. But when humans came along with their cattle and their horses, they kind of opened up a new niche for this cattle egret. So it was able to exploit it wherever it landed, in in America and Europe and Australia. But it doesn't appear to compete with native species. Like I said, it feeds a lot differently. It doesn't feed in the water. It it just follows the cattle and horses. So probably it's not causing much problems. In Hawaii, though, I did see that it has caused a lot of problems. It was actually brought to Hawaii from southern Florida in 1959 to eat cattle flies. Then they realized that it was also destroying the eggs of some of the native birds that they had there. So it's awkward. Yeah. Oh, we messed up. (laughs) But it's transatlantic flight. It's actually not the first bird to show transatlanticism. I had to throw that death cab for cutie reference in there. (laughs) But in 1969, uh, a sooty tern was banded in dry tortugas and it ended up turning up in West Africa. And then in 1957, a little egret was banded in Spain and it was recovered 4,000 miles away in Trinidad. So birds are capable of these like super long flights, even though they don't usually do them. It just makes you like, do they, when they're tired, do they just kind of get on the water and float? I know that's kind of no. They just we think they just keep going. Yeah, 
So the route we think oh they took gosh. is the shortest route looking on a map is from Senegal to Brazil, which is about 2,000 miles wide. It's the shortest route they could have possibly taken. However, when you look at the wind patterns there, it's unfavorable for them to fly across that. So actually, they think that the cattle egret came from North Africa or Portugal and then was carried by the northeast trade winds down to the Guineas and where it was first seen in Suriname. So yeah, so that's the cattle egret, which made it across here. Dang, what a determined bird. Very determined bird. So Zach, what do you think about invasive species now, after hearing all this? I think they're bad. I think they're good. <laughs> Kill them all? Kill them all? Um, what about the cattle egret and the Eurasian collared dove? Well, I feel like the, the Eurasian collared dove doesn't... I mean, it doesn't have, like, that bad of a impact on yeah. it. Yeah. And, I mean... It was know. released in the Bahamas, but what about the cattle egret that came over here on its own? I think, you know what? It made the flight, let it, I mean... It was bound to happen. Eventually. It was bound to happen. You can't stop it from flying across the ocean. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's a pretty... So you think that it, one's kind of more of a natural I one than the other ones? I think it's more natural, yeah. Gotcha. I mean, it's it cool. right? Yeah, it's true. We created but the environment it, for it. Yeah, but I mean, if it came over before, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. So what about the other invasive species? Do you think I mean, we I should just be able to, like... I mean, I want to go their eggs, but, you, you know, you <laughs> maybe be shaking just don't eggs. feed them. <laughs> I think you focus on the ones that they're affecting. You try to yeah. improve the habitats for the ones that... Don't feed them. So work on preserving them. the habitat for the native species. Yeah. Yeah. But don't as much focus on killing the invasive. It seems like a that's the Hannah consensus. Yeah, it is a loot. Yeah, you're right. It does seem like a loot. Everyone just be out there. Yeah, killing. You're right. I mean, because yeah, look out here with the pythons and the Everglades and everything. They kill more and more and more, and it just seems like it. It doesn't do very much. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with me, you guys. Yeah, learned a lot. Thanks for educating us. Yeah. You want to say, "Stay dirty, my birdie, Zach." Can we say it at the same time? Sure. All right. Ready? One. Wait, on three or after three? Okay. One, two, three. Stay dirty, my birdies. Woo! Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John Janusik, with our rotating panel of co-hosts. Thank you for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our outro music is New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. And our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. Follow them on Instagram and check them out wherever you get your music. Graphic design by my beautiful fiance, Lauren McClure. Be sure to subscribe and rate Dirty Bird Podcast. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice memo of your birding experience to have it read on the show. Until next time, stay dirty, my birdies. <laughs> <laughs>